Toby Haydock in a train corridor because this is a glamorous life. It's part two of the Brian Miller interview and we're talking about the fact that he was married to the much-missed Elizabeth Sladen who played Sarah Jane Smith. Yes. Uh, what else? Well, of course. I mean, because we mentioned, you know, that the, the start-off point of this interview is always is Doctor Who. But of course, you live Doctor Who to a slightly different experience than a lot of others in the fact that your your wife was in Doctor Who um, as a regular for for a number of years. So mm. um, before you were actually in it. So it, it must be a curious thing to be for it to be part of one's life in a way, without you having necessarily direct contact with it, but uh, she must have been bringing it, bringing it home um, you know, for, for, for a good couple of years. So, I mean, I got, well, I get the impression she thoroughly enjoyed her time on the show. Well, yes, she did. Uh, of course she did. Um, I know she enjoyed working with uh, John, and also uh, Tom, of course. They got on very well. Uh, um, <coughs> had a lot of fun, made each other laugh, uh, fooled around a bit, uh, on set I mean, <laughs> I don't know about anything else. Um, and yes, I mean it was interesting for me because, you know, I, I used to go along with her to various things and uh, of course when, when she started going to conventions in the USA, I went with her. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I benefited uh, quite a lot, of course, from all that. And, was, and it was a very enjoyable time. And then this extraordinary thing where she became, many years later, through the same programme, her own series, yep. uh, her own show, and suddenly... Um, you know, almost out of nowhere, this person who, um, you know, is very fondly regarded by Doctor Who fans is suddenly a mainstream success again, which I think for any actor must be quite an extraordinary thing after so long to, to be sort of thrust into the spotlight in, mm -hmm. and into quite such a massive extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, did it take you, was it a complete surprise for all of you? Well, it came out of the blue, uh, 2005. I was... I was doing The Woman in Black at the time, at, just up here at the Fortune. And uh, Liz got a call from her agent saying Russell Davis wanted to take her to uh, for a meal, have a little chat. Thought, oh, what's this about, you know? Very intriguing. She said, uh, oh, where, where could we go, where could we go? And I said, well, why don't you take them to Joe Allen's? I think it was Phil Collinson as well, and uh, and I said we could go home together afterwards. So she went and they had a chat, and then uh, I waited for her outside the Fortune, and they came swinging up the road. They'd obviously had a very good time, and I, you know, sort of congratulated Russell on the success of what he'd done with Doctor Who and, and then we went home and uh, 
and Liz, you know, told me that they would ask me if she'd like to do uh, one of Peter um, David, yeah. one of David Tennant's uh, Doctor Who stories. And of course, she was thrilled to bits, obviously. So it was all very exciting. And then, and then from there, they they did a the Sarah Jane special. Try it out. That worked, and they said, "Right, we'd like to do a series." So it was very exciting for her, and uh, and then of course second series, third series. Uh, and you got you got a nice part in one yourself. I did. Um, I did, and I I went up. Well, when the agent rang up about it, he said, "Oh, we're sending you up for a telly." I said, "Oh, good. What is it?" He said, "Oh, well, Sarah Jane." I said, "Oh." Is that a good idea? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, uh, nepotism. He said, now look, we saw this on the breakdown. We think you'd be right for this part. We're sending you up for it. They've said, yeah, okay, we'll see him. I went along for it. I was, I read for it. I was videoed for it. They said, oh, fine, thanks very much. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll let you know. We're seeing other people. I said, yeah, fine. And, uh, and then I got offered the part. Um... So I was glad, because I don't think Liz had anything to do with this. Right. Yeah. Which I was glad of, because I, you know, uh, all through the time that she'd originally done Doctor Who, I didn't, you know, she'd said to me once, she'd said, um, would you like me to put in a good word for you? And I said, no. No, you know, it's, it was her thing. Why should I want to be in something because she was in it? You know, no. Anyway. Yeah, it was quite a nice little part. I quite enjoyed yeah, doing it, fun. you know. Yeah. It was a nice company. Nice bit of uh, nice bit of location at Barry Island, you know. Very, very nice, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun, you know. Liz, Liz had a nice apartment on uh, Cardiff Bay, so I was able to stay there. In her last year, she was in John... Uh, John Berriman's uh, place oh, right. in his flat that he got there. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's how that came about. Um, yes, and of course, uh, I, you know, we we got to go to quite a, a number of uh, conventions in those days, and particularly in America. You know, we did the uh, tour with John Pertwee. Ingeborg went, John's wife, and I went supposedly to carry the cases, uh, and that was that was a lot of you know it was very enjoyable. Uh, Good uh, way to see the world. Well, we saw a little bit of the world. Yes. Uh, Los, where do we go? Oh, the first one she did was in Los Angeles, and uh, I was in a play at the Orange Tree, and she said, "Oh, you must come with me," and I said, "Well." How can I do that? I'm in this play, you know. Fortunately, it was the last week, so I was able to ask Sam Walters, the director, if he would take over the part for the last few days. And I knew he'd done that before, so I didn't feel bad about asking him. So, uh, anyway, he did. And I, I said, well, look, you don't have to pay me for this last week. I'll just do the first two nights, and then if you will take over. Which he did. Um, so Liz and I flew out on uh, on Laker, which in those days you could 
could just go down to Victoria Station, to the Laker office, you could say, oh, uh, two returns to Los Angeles, please. <laughs> uh, open returns, yeah. All right, yeah. Here. Go out, get on the train, go down to Gatwick, and, you know, you're on the, you're on the plane. Amazing. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I talk about progress. Yeah. <laughs> You've had some good roles in television over the years, and, and as, as, as and, and in conjunction with parts like in the Woman in Black, which is a fantastic role for an actor. Yeah. Um, you played Truscott in Lute on stage. Um, Davis in the Caretaker. So yeah. some good parts. So I wonder, oh, yes. is, is, are you more at home on stage or on television? And let's talk about some of the parts and things that you've enjoyed the most in either. Well, I would have to say that I am more at home on the stage because that was the background. That's how I started out. Um, although I, you know, I used to go to the films all the time, and you look at people on the screen, you think, "Oh, yeah, I'd like to do that." But no, I, I, I always felt more at home on the stage, and I think probably still do. Uh, I, I, I still don't feel I, I quite know how to act for the camera. I feel a bit intimidated still, but probably because I don't do it enough. I think if you're in, say, a soap, something long-running, you can um, uh, you get much more of the feel for get the balance right. And if you're in a soap for a long time, it, it becomes second nature. You know the character. You know the character so well. You don't. You don't have to reach for it. I mean, I did Coronation Street a couple of years ago. A couple of episodes. I thought, I'm not the right actor for this. I don't know why I got cast for it. I think if they got the right actor for it, they could have taken the character a bit further. Um, what did you feel you did wrong? I didn't feel I did it wrong. It was just that I didn't feel I was the right type for it. Um, no, the last time, I, I mean, I enjoyed doing The Woman in Black because that was like being in rep. Because if you're the older man in The Woman in Black, you get to play all the other parts. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I did it a couple of times up there. Uh, did it in Sheffield, a uh, little trip to Sheffield, and then uh, Belfast. Uh, I was always impressed by that, because that, they don't do it anymore, but in the Guardian listings, it always had Brian Miller and... Is it Mark? I can't remember who it was now. Um, in The Woman in Black. And now, after you stopped doing it, they didn't list the actors above the top. They obviously saved a few quid on the advertisement. Well, I know they used to do that. That's right. Uh, Mark Healy, yeah. Mark Healy, that's right. Yes, they used to get... Yes, the actors used to get billed in the theatre listings. Yeah. In fact, I think I kept one of them. I think it was a Sunday one. It was, it was my birthday, anyway. Uh... April the 17th and there it was in the listing you know and I thought oh great I think it might have been my 60th birthday so I thought well I should keep that so I have um, yes I don't know why they don't do that anymore although um, a Ray you know Ray Lonin used to say to me oh you're starring in the West End and I said well no I'm not really I said you know it's the play is the star. I mean, so many actors have done it. 
all the actor has to be is the actor has to be efficient, know what he's doing. But but really, people aren't coming to see you; they're coming to see the play. And if you can uh, give them a good time along the way, which I tried to do, I tried to introduce some humour into it. I thought, let's be a bit Hitchcockian here. Let's let's lead them up the garden path a bit before you give them the warmth. And I've seen actors who don't do that in this play. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh God! And you have to be very careful with the first act because it can be it can be a bit dreary if you don't entertain the audience. So I used to try and insert a bit of comedy here and there, you know, like Hitchcock would in some of his films, so that when it came time to hit the audience, they would be a bit softened up, you know, soften the audience up a bit, and then hit them with a big scream or something. Um, That's a sort of, you know, it's the theatrical experience, yeah, which uh, which I've always enjoyed, you know, even even in uh, in the audience, you know, you want you want the experience when you go and see something, like Hitchcock did with Psycho, you know, he softened the audience up, da da da, and Anthony Perkins, if you watch him in that first film, I mean, he got a bit trapped with old Norman, didn't he? But if you watch him in that first film, he's really very, very good. I mean, he really uh, softens the audience up. You know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, whoomph! And in those days, 1960, people were literally traumatised. I mean, they wouldn't be today, but then they were. Uh, when, it, when it first came out, I was working at the Marlow Theatre in Canterbury. And uh, because I was working in the evening, it was on at the local Odeon. And my landlady went to see it, and when I got home that evening, she was all... And so I had to come up to London to see it at the plaza uh, on a Sunday. Got on the train, went, uh, you know, went to the plaza to see it. Fine. Saw that. Then I went across the road to the Rialto to see uh, the millionaires. So I thought, you know... I, I tried to squeeze in as much as possible when I was working in Rep. Yeah. Um, not always coming up to London. Sometimes I'd get on the bus and go to Dover, to the pictures, or Whitstable, or somewhere like that. Uh, um, I don't know. I... But you're certainly a buff, because, I mean, I, I don't know some science fiction fans who could name all three actors who played Quatermass on telly, and, and you did over lunch, so I was very impressed by that. Um, so who, what, as somebody that's obviously got a, you know, is attuned to actors, um, as well as being one, because it's not necessarily always the case, who are the actors that you've worked with then, that you felt that you've learnt the most of, or, or most admired, you know, being in close proximity with? Well, when I was a student, you know, when I was working at Birmingham Rep, I was in this Christmas show called The Enchanted Forest. And I I had a couple of parts in that. I was a a fairy musician. And I was also a dragon. And I had to fight... I, I wore this full dragon costume, and I had to fight Ian Richardson, who was playing the prince. Of course, he kills the dragon. But uh, there was an actor there called John Carlin, and he was playing the wizard in this production. 
and that that really was one of the funniest performances I've ever seen. I used to watch it every night from the rooms, and the audience the audiences loved him, and uh, he. He was there for quite a while. He was at Birmingham Rep for quite a while. But his career after that, you know, uh, like a lot of really good actors in Rep, either you're lucky or you're not. And although he does appear, I've seen him in bits and pieces on television, he didn't, you know, his career didn't sort of get off the way it should have done. And I, I thought he was tremendously skillful with his comedy. He knew exactly how to place place things, just a look or, or a line and people would love it. Um, maybe because I was so young anyway and it was just a thrill to be working somewhere like the Birmingham Rep, the old Rep in Station Street, the original Rep, um, where so many famous careers had begun. Um, I, I was perhaps overawed. I was very young at the time, and of course, being young in those days was being young, not like today when everybody knows everything about any, everything. We didn't in those days. Life was a big mystery. Certain aspects of life were a tremendous mystery. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so certainly him. And uh, let's see if I can think. Yeah, there was, uh, in 1963, I understudied in a uh, Terence Rattigan play, which had just opened at that time, called Man and Boy. Uh, I was understudying two parts in it, and uh, it's always fascinating watching actors like uh, Charles Boyer was in it, you know, who was a very famous film star in his day. But there was a young American actor in it called William Smithers playing, it was one of the parts I was understudying. He was only in one scene playing an accountant. But I'd seen him in films. He, he was in a film called Attack, directed by Robert Aldrich, in which he'd got special billing, you know, introducing William Smithers. And uh, Jack Palance and Eddie Albert were starring. So I, I knew who he was. And, uh, and I thought he was very good in this scene. Uh, uh, very real, you know. Um, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult analysing why people are good or not. Um, uh, maybe it, may, it, it, a lot to do with the personality of the actor as well. It, it has to, the personality has to reach out and grab you, really which is why some people become film stars and some people don't. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the people who don't aren't particularly good, because some of them are very good, aren't they? Um, who else? Oh, well, in the early 70s as well, I was in a Alan Eggborn play, which Liz and I had both been in the previous year in Scarborough, and I went into the production in the West End with Robert Morley played it so I worked with Robert Morley for a couple of years and he of course he had a wealth of experience he was you know one of these old school totally theatrical people who wrote you know 
wrote plays, acted in plays, acted in films, uh, you know, knew everybody. And, and inevitably, you're bound to pick up something from them. Although he could be very naughty and uh, he had a television in his room and uh, he, he was watching the, the racing one matinee, you know. I was on stage playing a scene with the lady who was portraying his wife in the play and he suddenly appeared at, through the doors at the back of the stage, halfway through the scene, because he thought he was off. Because he'd be watching his television. And, uh, and he saw, immediately saw that he was early. And so he said, oh, oh, you're busy, dear, I'll come back later. You know? So I thought, yes, that, that's, you know, that's the way to do it. Yes, be positive. Something goes wrong, be positive. So, you know, you learn all sorts of things along the way, really. And, you know, when you're in rep, particularly weekly rep, and you have to keep going, keep going, you have to come up with something all the time. You have to be able to cover your mistakes. You can't afford, uh, you can't afford to let anything go. You can't drop anything. Uh, and, and, in fact, you can say virtually anything you like on stage, and the audience won't know unless you... Yeah, and I mean, there, there are actors notorious for, you know, for making things up. Even Shakespeare, I mean, it's very easy to make Shakespeare up. If you're a Shakespearean actor, you know all about the, the meter and all that, uh, and you can easily, you know, just boom, go out of your head, so you think, it's, as long as you can do it, you know, seamlessly, audiences will accept virtually anything you do. But you have to have the confidence, mm. you know. You have to, have, you have to know what you're doing. Uh, so maybe I was much better at that than than I am at this. You say I'm, I'm not very good at, at this sort of thing. You say you're not very good at that, but we have been talking for. I normally do half an hour. We've done nearly. We've done an hour. So oh, I've we? taken up far more time of yours than I promised I would. So maybe I just should ask you um, if there's any other parts or or things that we haven't talked about that uh, that stick in your mind. As being particularly memorable or enjoyable. Oh gosh, well, there's—I don't know. There's so many parts, really. Well, as I said, I would hark back to the woman in black uh, and the—I um, really did enjoy that because I said it, it was like being in rep again, being able to play all the parts, and. Uh, and it, it allows you to be a bit versatile, you see, which is uh, which is always good good for the actor. The actor likes to feel he's versatile, you know. It satisfies, you know, the part of you, the ego part, you know. I mean, we've all got egos, but actors have to have a sort of pronounced... Otherwise, it's very difficult to stand up in front of an audience under lights, particularly if you feel the heat of the lights coming down on you. To be able to do that... You know, you have to have something of a developed ego to do it. And yet, here you are telling me how, you know, you're not comfortable on telly and, and when we first met you said, well, I'm not going to have much that's interesting to say. Well, yet, I know I've spoken to 200-odd actors in the course of this process and, and it's a career that, you know, has, for a lot of people, petered out long before, you know, being in... Line of Duty, um, Wizards vs. Aliens, these are all modern programmes that you've had more than a 
cock on a spit in, so, you know, you, you must be doing something right. Uh, well, it's always nice when people ask you to do something. Yes, I enjoy... Yeah, I enjoy doing Line of Duty, yeah. I was in three episodes, but... For three episodes, I think I worked two days and a read-through. Wow. One day was on location. Second day was doing all the studio stuff. They're all three episodes wow. that I was in. Wow. So, in a way, although it's nice to have done it, and you, there's no... The sort of enjoyment you used to get from being part of something. Sure. Read through, sitting around, having a chat, having a gossip, having a laugh, you know, going out for a drink or a cup of coffee or something. All that's gone for the most part. Unless you're in, uh, unless you're, you're in something that's long running, you know, if you're in a series, yeah. then you have more of a chance of the social life as well. Yeah. But if you're not, then more often than not, as soon as you finish, they'll say, right, um, taxi waiting for you. In the old days, you'd go up to the club maybe, in the BBC or London weekend. Uh, you'd go up and have a drink up there. I'll see you upstairs in the club. Yeah, okay, fine, lovely. Nowadays, taxi waiting for you. Uh, so it's, it's not the same. No. In a way. I, I don't know. I suppose young actors who are doing well, who are at the top of the tree, there are other compensations. But for, but for actors like, like me, who are sort of journeyman actor, it's not quite so... Uh, it's not quite so interesting, really, in, in a way. No. No. The, the involvement isn't quite the same. No. Which is a shame for, for young actors, I think. Yeah. Although, I, you know, I, I was very lucky to be born when I was born. I was born in 1941. So I was growing up during all this wonderful period which we were talking about over lunch, you know, when the cinema was was exploding. I was talking about the screens exploding, these great wide screens and stereophonic sound, which we've never heard before. Never heard, I mean, it's so common now, but in those days, you'd never heard stereophonic sound. Great. Wow. You know, 70-millimeter um, Cinerama. Whoa. Um, it was it was wonderfully exciting, and, and, and you know people have misinterpret what how the fifties were. You know they think oh, grey, uninteresting, depressing. I, I, it wasn't like that for me. My first visit to London was 1951, a day trip with my mum and dad to the Festival of Britain. Beautiful summer day, wonderful like you sometimes get. Beautiful blue sky all day. Very, very exciting for me at that time. Uh, South Bank, then we got on a boat, went up to the Pleasure Gardens at Battersea. I mean, that was really... And I still remember that as one of the highlights of my, of my life. Because it was a new... Ex uh, an original excitement, you mm. know, a first 
probably one of the first big excitements, actually visiting London for the Festival of Britain, which was very big in 1950. Yeah, of course. And then in, a couple of years later, I came down on a school trip to have a look at the coronation decorations. Wow. Uh, <laughs> those big arches in the mall, all the bunting up. We went past, or came down on a coach, we went past this cinema at Marble Arch, and they were showing a film called Man on a Tightrope, a 20th Century Fox film, Frederick March, directed by uh, Elia Kazan. And I clocked this straight away. So that's what I was interested in. What, what's coming on the pictures? This is a new film, Man on a Tightrope, right. And that's, you know, still there in, in my mind. I mean, why? Why is that still there in my mind? I don't know. Well, because I think as this podcast is proof, something etches it into your childhood Yes, brain, yes. Yeah. It stays with it, which is why I'm here now today. Yes, 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 yes. Well, look, as I said, I've exceeded the time I promised I'd take of yours, so I'm going to ask you the final two questions. Mm-hmm. The first one is, um, I do not get paid for this. You have not been paid for this. The listeners do not pay to listen to this. What we ask instead is that they, in lieu of payment, donate to a charity, and I ask you to nominate the charity. Behind. Well, I would have to say the Macmillan, you know. Macmillan nurses, yeah, uh, for reasons obvious, I suppose, yeah. Of course. Um, certainly, so, you know, anyone wants to donate? Yeah, and I will do a link uh, in my... I do a little outro at the end, and mm-hmm. I, will, I will give them all the information that they need. Yeah. And the final question is that this podcast was uh, nominally convened uh, for Doctor Who's 50th anniversary. It's obviously been in and out of your life in various different guises, but what's your, what's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there, Brian? Ah. Well, that's a, that's, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Mm. Now, you told me there weren't going to be any I tricky. should have suborned you with that one as well, <laughs> shouldn't I? <laughs> well, of course, it, it depends entirely upon... Uh, your generation when you started watching Doctor Who uh, if you've watched it all the way through or if you've come to it halfway through or if you've only just come to it with uh, Christopher Eccleston say or, uh, or uh, who's uh, Paul McGann Paul McGann uh, let's say you came to it with Paul McGann then there was this sort of hiatus as they say in America yeah it was on a hiatus uh, and then it was rescued by a knight in shining armour called uh, Sir Russell <laughs> Sir Russell Davis who came galloping along and said I am going to rescue you <laughs> and, and indeed he did um, well, I would say, you know, you must stick with the program uh, uh, and enjoy Mr. Capaldi and uh, write to the producers and say, please give Mr. Capaldi something stronger. And if you've allowed him to, uh, to have failed Clara so badly then then you must do something about it I mean what I mean by that is let the producers know 
if you think uh, they're not doing it the way it should be done. Uh, although I, I know a lot of younger viewers do like it because I, I see the letters they write in the Doctor Who Monthly. Although, you know, they, they, some of them can be critical, but a, a lot, it seems to please a lot of them. Uh, and they're young people and they're much brighter and cleverer than, than I am because they've grown up in a different world. They've grown up in a much cleverer and brighter world than I did. I grew up in quite a simple world, really, which I've never gotten over. Uh, certainly, no. I mean, uh, you know, Doctor Who is, is part of the culture and should be embraced as part of the culture. And I hope Peter Capaldi uh, carries on for, a, for as long as he wants to. Tom Baker did it for seven years. Now, Tom Baker got a bit naughty towards the end. <laughs> Started living at... Uh, at North Acton, he brought his toothbrush in his top pocket. <laughs> but I mean, Tom Baker is one of the world's eccentrics, and we're fast running out of these sort of people, and that's a shame. I mean, we used to have Sir Michael Gambon. Unfortunately, Sir Michael Gambon is, has succumbed a little bit to age, I suppose, and it's, it happens to everybody. But, uh, you know, I remember all those... There's never ever going to be anybody like Ralph Richardson, I don't think, who I thought was just a wonderful, wonderful actor. Whether he could get away with it nowadays, I don't know. I'm sure he, I'm sure he would, because he was such a marvellous actor. Uh, and Olivier, who, who's a wonderful actor. I mean, I know people condemn Olivier and say he was simply a, a technician. I, I don't think he was, no. Um, Ken Gilbert, who you, in your, your obit, pointed out that he'd been in uh, King Lear and The Dream with Charles Lawton at Stratford. But I saw both of those productions. Um, Charles Lawton, who I thought was a marvellous actor. Uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream at Stratford, 1959, I thought was the most sumptuous production of that play I'd ever seen although I was very young um, uh, and King Lear was, was interesting Albert Finney was in them I got to understudy Albert Finney a few years later in uh, Crap's Last Tape you know, at the Royal Court met Samuel Beckett you know, so uh, yes I feel very lucky, you know. I've, you know, I've, I've managed to sort of amble through life, you know, um, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how how I would have managed uh, in life without Liz. I was extremely lucky to meet Liz, and now, uh, you know, Sadie, Sadie, our daughter, now married, and. Uh, so I, I, I've got nothing to complain about. Even if I never get offered another job, I have nothing to complain about. And I am... Uh, I feel very lucky. Well, I feel lucky that uh, you've given me your time. And I know a lot of actors who do nothing but complain. So it's lovely to ah. hear from one who has nothing to complain about. Oh, well, you know... Actors complain because they like complaining. It's part of the thing. I'm sure if I was sitting around with 
with poor old Ray, we'd be having a little complain. I mean, I used to meet him regularly in Cafe Nero in Ealing, uh, and then when he became ill, it used to peter out a little bit, although he still came in every now and again. And there was nothing better we, we enjoyed than a good old complain about this, that and the other. And a gossip, you know. I mean, you know, if you go backstage at any theatre, you'll hear them complaining and having a laugh. And having a, uh, it's, it's what makes the world go round. Absolutely. And we don't want to become too serious. I tell you, you must never, ever become too serious because then you, that's when you get old. Okay. So not being serious is the key. Well, I mean, obviously there are serious moments in life. But you must try and retain whatever it was when you were a kid that fired you up. Um, try and retain that as much as you possibly can through all the serious bits. And of course there will be serious bits. You can't make a joke about everything. But, you know, keep your try and keep your mind alive, you know, active. Uh, uh, and always, uh, you know, remain interested in what you've always been interested in. And that's what's brought me here today to talk about Doctor Who and many other things. So, Brian Miller, thank you very much. Well, thank you too. It's been, you've been charming, charming. And I hope it's been of interest. I mean, it doesn't sound very interesting to me, all this rambling on, but still. Uh, I hope it has been of interest. Thank you, Toby definitely has been and I know that's going to be of great interest to, to everybody so I really appreciate that. Thank you. I hope it was okay. My thanks to Brian who I'm on the way to see again as we speak. I think that's the first time I, that's happened. I've edited and done the links for a podcast with a person I'm about to see again for the first time since I did it but that's not important right now. Um, because I'm in a train carriage and this is probably noisy so let's just say Brian's charity is Macmillan Macmillan Macmillan.org.uk Macmillan.org.uk uh, a very worthy cause indeed. indeed please donate if you can there's another one of these next time in the meantime thanks for listening and goodbye soon from Big Finish Productions. Things die. It's just what they do. All we know about the Daleks is that they are creatures of war. You are in our power! Every minute of every day, on every world, every galaxy, something dies. If Dr. Keller had never arrived on Arking ever, would this still all be happening? Crying over it is spitting into the wind. Death is natural, yes. Surrender your targets to the Daleks immediately! When an off-world ship crashes into our ocean and they want to salvage something from it, what else could it be but a weapon? There comes a time in the history of all civilizations, worlds great and small, when something, some event, some disease, some war, tips the balance of things when even nature must look at the numbers and nervously catch its breath. 
And on those occasions, well, it's time to make plans. Why should I trust you? Because I am the master. What? The War Master. Coming December 2017. Yes. Are you scared yet? <laughs> Big finish. We love stories.